Feminist Buzzkills Live, the show that is super excited that Brittany Griner is finally free and will be reunited with her wife. I'm Moji Elabode L, and I'm joined by my co host, Marie Khan. Hello, all. Coming up on today's show, we've got an amazing lineup of experts. Dr. Melissa Madera from the Abortion Diary podcast is here to destigmatize, drop some research knowledge, and talk about abortion. Plus, author, educator, and creator of Smarter in Seconds, Blair Imani is here to talk about simplifying complicated concepts. But first, <clears throat> anti-abortion ghouls are failing at making abortion unthinkable, which is one of their off-stated goals, but they are making headway in making abortion information more and more difficult to obtain, all while using the First Amendment to pop up their bigotry. I know it's really fucking sucks. Like, for example, South Carolina has actually proposed legislation to make it unlawful to discuss abortion. Oh, damn. So you can't think about it even. Yeah, don't ask. Think don't about tell. It. Well, Idaho, we have the University of Idaho. So, you know, a, an educational institution, supposedly staff there were told they couldn't discuss abortion or birth control, but they could talk about condoms if they were talking about STI prevention. Oh, yeah. We talked about that on the pod. Also, Oklahoma librarians were told they could not say the word abortion, even if someone in the library asked for help. Great. Texas, do we remember when those state officials sent cease and desist letters to abortion funds and and then just tried to pretend like it was fine and you're allowed to harass on state letterhead? Yep. And they couldn't. They were wrong. Anyway, it's wild because like they're taking this and they're using it essentially like First Amendment rights to fight this. But meanwhile, they're using their First Amendment rights to like prop up their bigotry. Like, I don't know if you remember, but they had a Supreme Court win a couple of years ago when fake clinics, clinics that do not provide any sort of reproductive health and definitely not abortion health, were allowed to lie because they were lying. It was weird. It was like because they're not healthcare, they can lie about being healthcare. Oh, well, now it's time to get over to our quick hits, I think. It was a nice little uplifting chat. Yeah, just keeping it broad and uh, bright. And as an FYI, I'm not going to be starting us off with any happy shit. I willfully chose the bad here to speak of. Thanks, Marie. First off, our neighbor to the north, they're sounding the alarm on underfunded clinics. Folks in rural parts of Canada often need to travel to abortion providers in major cities, especially for surgical care. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. We have four Toronto clinics who are not being reimbursed fast enough by the government, whose J-O-B literally includes funding procedure costs because nationalized health care, baby, for a country that speculated more Americans would cross over for abortion care once Roe fell. Canada, you need to fund your clinics so your own communities can also thrive. And in the world of reproductive justice, we are reminded that all cops are bastards. An Indigenous Lakota woman in Rapid City, South Dakota, was violently arrested two weeks ago by local police, a few days after giving emergency birth. While being imprisoned, her health deteriorated to the point she became unconscious. She was finally transported to a hospital, but passed away last week. We literally hammered in this point when we had our guest host, Renee Bracey Sherman, with us. At minimum, pregnant and postpartum people need our support and respect while they are healing and recovering, not incarceration. Never incarceration. <laughs> Moji, I'm sorry I set you up with some really 
really heavy topics. It's okay. It's okay. I'm ready to come in with the bright and light, right? Here's the good. Um, Vermont has read the studies because facts and understands that when people have sex ed, they are better equipped to protect themselves from STIs, unwanted pregnancy. And truthfully, it may delay sexual activity in teens if you're into that. I don't know if I care. But they have a law in Vermont that mandates that teens learn about contraception, pregnancy, and abortion. And the really great part about this too is it creates a space where teens can talk to trusted adults about this and don't have to learn about sex ed from Nick Fuentes. Thank the goddesses. (laughs) Also, a hairstylist in Oklahoma is making it his business to push a ballot initiative to put Oklahoma in the Oklahoma Constitution. Roger Cody, Cody, it's C-O-O-D-Y. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it, but he is trying to overturn an abortion ban in his state. And he's trying to use the mechanism that voters use to usher in medical marijuana in 2018. So Roger needs to get 1,073,000 registered voters to sign his petition in the next 90 days. So if you live in Oklahoma, consider looking him up and not to consider tendering dudes, but here I am centering dudes. Uh, it seems dudes are looking around and realize that people with vaginas have been holding the lion's share of the contraceptive bag. And so in the wake of Dodds, there's been a 34% increase in vasectomies. And we say great that men and people with penises are taking on some of the responsibility. And uh, that's the best I got to say about them today. These stories will be in the show notes. And as always, we remind you the best, most up-to-the-minute resource on accessing abortion care and funding is INeedAnA.com. So Marie, let's get the BS popping. What you got? I have a, a quandary I'm posing for us or something we should think mm-hmm. about. With every advancement in healthcare comes the responsibility of equal access, right? We talk about self-managed abortion care a ton on the pod. But we haven't really drilled down on all the different types of companies behind the abortion telehealth system. And we should. With the FDA finally easing restrictions on medication abortion, abortion seekers can now more easily get pills from a variety of safe sources. Abortion providers that do telehealth, like Just the Pill or Carafem, companies like Hey Jane or Choice, and also through other avenues like nonprofits and collectives like Plan C Pills and Aid Access. What we are seeing right now, especially, are that is the emergence of more companies funded by investments, funded by venture capitalists. And this is creating valid concerns among some abortion activists on who's going to get to access care and who is care being created and and invested for. And this is really a quandary because on one level, like this is really great that people are thinking about expanding, you know, expanding care and telehealth is like such a wonderful thing. But like 19 states in this country have already banned telemedicine. And so the growth and investment that startups and venture capitalists have, they don't really help those people. They don't want to send pills to those states. It's illegal. And I feel like these people are probably risk adverse in some ways that like true activists on the ground that are out here doing the work are ready to like fight against and push against. Yeah. It really, really is. And I do, I do want to shout out Renee, our, our guest host Renee again, because she was, she was one of the folks consulted, the activists consulted for this article. And she, I really appreciated that she hit home on the fact, you know, who is it that's being that's continued to be disenfranchised and looked over in those 19 states? It's rural folks. It's black folks. It's brown folks. It's uninsured. It's poor These are folks. The same people. Yeah. Poor folks. The same people that pre-row weren't getting this attention and care. So I'm sorry. I'm not going to celebrate because some tech bro has like decided he wants, you know, impress his next date and say, yeah, you know, I'm investing in this or that. Like you're you're just supporting the opportunity for someone in Illinois, which I love the state of Illinois, to get access to telemedicine, abortion through a different vendor. 
You're not helping people in Wisconsin. You're not helping folks in Ohio get that care. And those those are the places we need to be focusing on. And truthfully, when you look at things, especially as a startup and using venture capital, like it's a capitalist, you know, it's in the name. It's a capitalist venture. And therefore, the focus is not on helping people, ideally, or or centrally. The focus is increasing capital. And unfortunately, capital is increased not usually to help poor people, but just to make things a little more convenient for rich people. So, yeah. So this is a reminder. It isn't about pill efficacy. These are great safe sources for for telemedicine care. It's about access and equity and who's getting funded to to get the abortion care they deserve. We also wanted to remind folks that you can get very accurate information on INeedAnA.com. You'll see the difference between telehealth providers, brick and mortar clinics. So to do your research and, and see, okay, who, who are these companies and who are they actually advancing reproductive equality for in what part of the country? Moji. Yeah, I got something. I just wanted to say content warning that in this next story, I will be talking about sexual assault. And if, you know, you need to protect yourself from hearing about that, just skip forward about five minutes. This is a story about a woman who is actually fighting against rape exceptions in abortion bans. Uh, that's right. It's a woman who claims that uh, her, bio, her bio mom was raped at her conception, and she has decided that the choice that her mother made, which is to have a child, is the only choice that people who get pregnant after sexual assault should have. Uh, the activist is named Rebecca Kessling, and she was adopted. And when she was a teenager, like 18, she was reunited with her bio mom. And her mom admitted to her that she'd considered an abortion when she found out she was pregnant after her assault. And Kessling's takeaway was, my mom tried to kill me. Which, wow, like way to have so little compassion for like whatever your mom was going through and the choices that she needed to make. Yeah, I thought that was like glaring when I read it. Also, rape exceptions are literally the floor, right? Like it's a really high bar. Mm -hmm. And in states that have abortion bans, it often really fails to help people who need or want abortion after assault to even get to even access the care they want. A lot of times there's like mandatory reporting. Uh, I don't know if there's mandatory convictions, but it's just a lot of steps. And it's essentially it's giving revictimization. Yeah, they want to see paper trails. They want to see, oh, hey, you went and talked to the police. You did all this. Well, guess what? And that is that is totally it is great if someone wants to do that, if that is part of what they need. We fully endorse that. We want to get predators off the street. What we also endorse is people getting timely health care. And maybe in the moment that you are currently pregnant, you want to focus on that and not another office at the state level circle jerking you around while you're trying to get health care. And also, first off, rape is not an exception. No, no. Rape should not be the the this that should not be the floor of what, okay, this is now where we decide you want compassion. Exactly. Why why even do that? Why give anyone compassion if you're going to require they be raped in order to earn it? Listen, abortion bans are trash and we know that. One of the good things that this activist is doing is she is fighting against parental rights for rapist fathers. And that is something we don't talk about because I believe if a person has survived sexual assault, they can decide what they want to do with their bodies and any resulting pregnancy. But what happens, a dark part we don't talk about, is that often rapists have been allowed visitation or even custody of children conceived during rape. And that is more revictimization on a scale that I can't even fathom. Yeah. Yeah. So. Thank you all, those that stayed with us and listened to that. This is an important thing to watch and keep an eye on. And again, there should be no reason bans on abortion. You don't need a reason to have an abortion. Period. Full stop.
Anyway, here to talk about fighting abortion stigma is the Jill of all trades at the Abortion Diary, the only audio archive of abortion stories and special projects consultant at Plan C Pills and former director of research and partnerships at Choice, a telehealth clinic. Please welcome Dr. Melissa Madera. Hi, Melissa. Thank you for joining us. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So we're super excited you're here to join us. Um, and to just start off our question, what inspired you to start the Abortion Diary podcast and chronicle abortion stories? Oh, that's a good question. I always have a hard time answering. <laughs> it feels like a long-winded answer. Take your time. The short answer is I had an abortion when I was a teenager, um, but there is a longer answer. So um I did have an abortion when I was a teenager. I was 17. Um, and it was like right after I graduated high school. And um, I went to Catholic all-girls high school. I didn't know anything about anything to do with my body, with sexuality, with getting an abortion. And it was just a lot of luck. And, uh, you know, a family that kind of took um, control of the situation that I was able to get an abortion. And my life turned out the way it did because... I would have had a, like a 25 year old child now. Oh, and that seems, I, it seems like crazy, just like a crazy thing to even think about or yeah, just in my mind doesn't even make sense. <laughs> um, but you know, it, it just wasn't the right time to have a child. And I wanted to go to college and my parents wanted me to go to college. You know, I'm, I'm, the child of immigrants and their, you know, idea of success is getting an education. And for my parents specifically, it was getting an education and being an independent person and being able to take care of myself because I may or may not have um, a partner or a husband or whatever. So it was just like, you have to be able to go out in the world and care for yourself. And that's what they wanted for me. I think they think I took it a bit too far. Um, <laughs> they're like, um, where are the grandbabies? And I'm like, sorry. I um, and, you know, now in my life, I'm 43 and I would like to have a child. And it's really, really hard when you're a single person and when your eggs are no longer fresh 17-year-old eggs. Right. But I, I did actually do fertility treatments like uh, a few years ago and they just didn't work. And my doctor was like, I mean, the thing about fertility treatments and art generally is like it's all speculative. Is. Does this work? But does that work? It's like, is this, a, is this a science? But it's like speculation. Um, maybe it might work. Maybe it won't. And that's what I felt like the whole time. Besides the fact that also I felt like I was just like in a business all the time, like not really cared for. And it cost like a gazillion dollars um, that my insurance didn't pay for. I mean, I'm getting on a little tangent about this. but um... <laughs> Is this the kind of stuff that you address in your abortion diaries podcast? Or do you stick only to stories specifically about the abortion procedure, people's abortion procedure stories? Well, the main story is the abortion story, right? But people have all kinds of reproductive experiences, right? So we talk about all of them. And I think that's one thing that we need to talk about more. It's like abortion, it, it should not be siloed. Like it's- No, yeah. It's, it's part of the reproductive journey. Yeah, it doesn't occur in a silo. No. Like so much is 
is yeah. needed for a positive abortion experience. Or even yes. a negative one. Like it, so much is needed for an abortion yes. experience. <laughs> Full stop. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> yes, yes. And it is part of the reproductive journey. <laughs> yeah. So when people come on the podcast and they're going to share their abortion experiences, I don't know what else they're going to talk about. They could be talking about all kinds of things. They, you know, miscarriage, of course, comes up. It's such a common experience also that we don't talk about adoption because many people have adopted or many people have also had children that then go on to be adopted by others. So there's just a lot. And other people do have issues, you know, getting pregnant. They have tried fertility treatment. So all of this stuff comes up and it's just like, yeah, my life is a lot about abortion, but I also I also have other reproductive journeys <laughs> that are part of that experience, right? And we need to be able to talk about all of them. And actually, I was just at um, the Society of Family Planning meeting just a couple of days ago, and someone was like, would you do a project where we talk about infertility and talk about those stories um, and talk about like that process and going through a fertility treatment? It's not something we talk about. It's definitely not something we talk about. Generally, it's not something we talk about as, as people of color. Like so many women of color do not have the ability to access this um, we don't talk about the money involved, which is frankly out of control. Um, and we don't talk about what it means also to be doing this as a single person or a queer person, e whether you're in as a queer person in a relationship or not, right? Um, and even how like sometimes your insurance might cover it, but there's all of these hoops you have to like go through. And if you are a single person, or a person in a, a relationship with someone, uh, you know, of the same gender, like those hoops, you can't even go through those hoops. Like they don't, they're not even presented <laughs> yeah. to you. Like you can't even see the hoops. No, they're, they're not invisible even, hoops. Like, possible. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. They ask questions like, well, why are you infertile? Prove your infertility. And it's like, because you don't understand lesbians, <laughs> yeah. people have to prove this. Or anyone, right. anyone. But like, yeah, or straight <laughs> people, or straight people, because you don't understand straight people. Like, no. oh, and also there's the part it's that you said crazy. that it's that it's an art, right? Like they actually, I mean, obviously there are some like best practices, but I think a lot of it, everyone I know who's gone through a fertility journey that involved doctors, there is a, just a lot of like hurry up and wait and hope and fingers crossed and pray yeah. or not <laughs> all the time it's literally a hurry up and wait and let's see let's see you know one of the things that was so frustrating is like going to a doctor who's like maybe this will work let's try that or like you want something and they're like let's do this first and you're like I know what I want <laughs> you know I know what I want to do. Um, and also, this is science. So let's do all the science. Right. Let's, let's science forget, this shit. Forget this. Yeah, let's forget this BS. Like, let's try to be as natural as possible. I didn't come here for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I came here for the science. <laughs> so in any case, yes. 
Uh, I went on a tangent. I didn't talk about the podcast, it's... how I started it. I feel like this is all really, really valuable and interesting to me because I think that that exactly as you said before, that like this is all a part of the reproductive journey. And these are all a part of things that people who have uteruses or people who love people with uteruses experience, right? And I think that that especially as people of color, but it and and generally I think even in the repro space, there is sort of the I feel like antis try to pretend that all we care about is abortion. And it's like, no, reproductive justice Mm -hmm. is about the whole person and the whole of their wants and needs. Right. It's about everybody getting the care that they want and need. And to me, in these situations and all this repro situation, what you want and need are like the same exact thing. Um, They're not, it's not either or, right? And so it's really about everybody getting access to all the care that they need at any time that they want it. And um, I think that you know, the more we talk about it, the more maybe people will start understanding. I have no real uh, belief that they will understand anything that we're like saying or like be in any sort of um, open to understanding it. But I think we do need to talk about it more, especially like as a movement, we don't talk about it. And actually movements, plural, because it's not all one gigantic movement we don't actually talk about that like we're in um an abortion space and people are like we're just talking about abortion and i'm like well, there's so many more right. <laughs> so like <laughs> so that are part of our lives and our journey as a, an abortion activist i feel like i'm whenever people like ask like how do you try to convince antis and i was like i don't that's not who i'm speaking to nope. i am speaking nope. to people who are not antis who just like don't think about some things or like have not considered another opinion, but it's like, no, I'm not trying to convince if you, if you believe like the bullshit, then like enjoy your bullshit. Most of us don't believe that bullshit. And that's who we need to have these broader conversations with. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really important. And that's has been so important in my work because I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. I mean, I started the podcast uh, because I wanted a space to share my experience, which was like very complicated and not all, you know, roses and empowering. It was actually like a lot of feelings of voicelessness, a lot of feelings of like, that's not how I wanted things to go. Um, and also just like, I don't know, nobody asked me what I wanted, you know, and so many people have those kinds of experiences, but we tend to not want to hear them. So for me, it was like, I want a space that I can just be like uncensored. I wanted to share my experience the way that it really is. And I want to give other people that space as well. And most of the people who come to share their their stories on the podcast are just people who are like, oh, I have nowhere else to share this. And people don't want to hear the complication. They don't want to hear anything that isn't like a perfect abortion story. There is no perfect good abortion story. It's all complication. It's all just like, you know, people feelings, all kinds of different feelings. And I wanted to give people space for that. And, you know, that's, that's what it's there for. And that's what it will always be there for. It's there only for the people who've had abortions to have the space. It's not for anyone else. It's not for anything else. And there's like very few spaces that exist for that. So for me, it's really important to keep it that way. And yeah, I mean, 
we just need a space to to share the real deal, our real truths. So that's what it's there for. I'm so glad you you've created that space. And it's just one, it's just one example of the many hats and the many spaces that you yourself inhabit. Um, in addition to, I know abortion diaries, you're a researcher on Project Sana, self-managed abortion needs assessment out of UT Texas in Austin. And I wanted to ask you in particular, um, you previously worked with a telehealth provider, a virtual health provider, Choice. And we have seen since Roe fell, especially here in the U.S., more telehealth options emerging for folks to get abortion medication care. And I'm wondering, what are some of the opportunities and challenges you see as this is sort of relatively new, this idea of like a virtual clinic, a telehealth opportunity? How do you see that as someone who has this amazing researcher insights and understands what the numbers actually mean? Yeah, um, that's such a good question. And also, (laughs) when you say like, you wear a lot of abortion hats. I I do. Um, and I didn't mean to. It, it just kind of like happened and I've been open to them all. And I and someone just asked, like, what is your North Star in all the work that you do? I mean, I I the room that I was in was like, oh, a lot of researchers. And it was like, what's your North Star? And I was like, oh, my North Star is not the same as your North Star. Like that, but my North Star is always that I want people to have the abortion experience that they want. And I want their experiences to be respected and to be honored, right? And all the work that I do, that's where I am. And I do think that telehealth has the ability to do that for people who want that kind of abortion, because as we know, one kind of abortion is not the abortion for everyone, but it does have the ability to give people access who wouldn't normally have it. Unfortunately, we're not there yet, right? Because so many of the telehealth providers based in the US, they're they're not providing it to the people who most need it, right, still. Um, And if you're just making an abortion experience that someone could have already have more cushier than the one that they could have had, we're not doing our jobs. We're here to give everybody access to any abortion that they want. And to me, the truth is that if you're not working towards being obsolete, then you're not doing your job in the abortion space, right? If you're not working towards everybody being able to access abortion for free um, at any moment, easily, anywhere, and that means that maybe your work is obsolete, then we're not on the same page because that's what I that's what I want for anybody to have access to care. And so it has the ability to do that if we can actually do all of the work all of the time for everyone who needs it. The challenge and the problem with it is that not enough rich people are willing to give us their money. <laughs> yes. The problem is that People are not willing to part with it. And let us have control over that money. Like fully part with it. Non-restricted funds. Yeah. Yes. Like we want fully. to pay undocumented people to access things yep. as yes. much as we want to pay someone yes. who's most privileged. But it's the undocumented people who don't get that. And we're ignoring them. And so this is the problem with both philanthropy and VC, right? So like there are strings attached. So we can't do the work the way that we know it needs to be done for the people we need to do it for. And then on the other hand, in the VC world, they want to somehow make a profit. If you have worked in abortion enough, you know that there's no money here. 
we are just wanting to make sure that people have access to this care. And yes, abortion is a business, a business. And we don't talk about that enough, right? It costs money. Abortion is a business, but it's a business that does not make money. No. That is constantly working on fumes. You're not buying Twitter with abortion money. And it's so, like, I came from a different space than the one that I was working in when I went to work at a startup. The the reason that I started to work there is that I know that choice is founded by people who are clinicians. They understand the abortion space. They care about making sure that everybody has access and that it's patient-centered. But... We were not able to fund our work. We were not able to get money from VCs. That money is going to a different telehealth service only, basically. I won't talk about that and get into that. But the, the point is that we're not here to make a profit. We are here to give people the care that they need. And if you are not, if that's not what you are here for, then get out of the way. And so, so... The problem that I that I see and the problem that that I think we need to address more and more, it, especially in spaces that now telehealth, you know, they're startups. A lot of them are for profit. They need money from these, you know, venture capitalists who are still not wanting to give us the money. But if you've noticed, they've been talking a lot about how they care about repro and they're putting out statements about how they care about repro. There was just a statement where all these VCs were talking about VCs for repro and they were like, we have $13 billion in assets. Have you given even 0.001% of those assets to repro? Or, you know, and if we're going to talk about abortion solely or abortion at all, no, they haven't. And it's just a lot of lip service because there's still this idea that in order for VCs to give you money, you need to like show that you can make some sort of profit. Yeah, you got to shark tank it. Yeah, and if you've been in the space enough, you know that's like not where we are. It's not where we want to be either. We want to give people care. Um, so I, I think that there needs to be a change in mindset of those people who have the money, who can help us continue to give people access and expand that access because Telehealth has the ability to do a lot, to really expand access in places where people have like the least access to abortion. But unfortunately, because we live under capitalism, we need money to do that. Uh, We can't just do it with our hearts and with our souls. If we could, we'd already be there. Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. I mean, we're trying, but we're not. Yeah, the thoughts and prayers are not as effective as we'd hope. We were talking about like VCs and and telehealth startups. So I'm really glad that you brought your insight into that. I just want to, you know, dial it away from the the ultra rich into the normies for a second. What do you wish that the general public understood about abortion stigma? Wow, that's a like, profound question. Look at I'm like, whoa, how am I going to answer this? Um, that it's everywhere and that it's in words that you don't think are stigmatizing. Um, so even in our space, in the abortion space, there's a lot of stigma, um, around abortion and people feel stigmatized because of the words that people use, um, to talk about abortion. Um, and also that we could reduce stigma if we just use the words. 
abortion, like just use the word abortion as much as possible uh, in your everyday life. And so I try to do that <laughs> as much as possible. Sometimes it's it's just unplanned because it's just the way my life is. I was just at a doctor's appointment yesterday. And for some reason on the doctor, on the paperwork, they were like, what do you do for work? And I was like, abortion things. Literally, that's what I wrote. I was like, I can't get into the news. I can't, there's not enough space for it. So I was just like, abortion things. And she's like, what do you do? And I'm like, well, you know. And then I had this conversation in like, in like a smaller town in Connecticut, which like Connecticut is very, you know, pretty open liberal but you never know what people are going to say so like just have conversations with anybody just all the people in your doctor's office I, I've been wearing since 2012 a bag that says I have an abortion and I get into all kinds of crazy conversations with people usually they're positive sometimes they're not but it really opens a, a space for conversation for people that one you may not have never talked to ever you know, to people who might have a, had an abortion and never had the opportunity to talk to someone about it or talk to about abortion and generally, or three people who are like what I like to call abortion curious, like they're not anti-abortion. They're not like uh, working for abortion rights, but they're just like, oh, I don't really talk about abortion. I don't know anything about abortion, but I'm curious to know more. And then you just have these conversations with people and then it goes on from there. So to me, it's like, if you want to help us reduce stigma around abortion, just talk about abortion. Just use the word and don't use coded language. Sometimes it just really gets like my blood pressure <laughs> rising when people are using coded language around abortion. I remember being at like a wedding and it was a space where there was a lot of people who do abortion work. And someone said, why can't we just call it women's health? And I was like, why would we? Why can't we just say abortion? Because that's what it is. Um, and the more we talk about it and use the language, the more that it gets out there in the world. And also, like, it's a way to give people information. That's really important to me. It's part of why the, I think the podcast is really important. People share their stories and provide information to people in the world about how to get an abortion, what it is like to have an abortion, just abortion in generally. When I work with Plan C, you know, like the work with Plan C is really about how to get the word out about abortion, how to access pills, right? And so just like providing people with information about where to get that information, which is really important because we found in our research on Project Fauna that so many people, just like time was wasted searching for abortion information and where to access abortion just wasted time unnecessarily because it's just not out there or your friend hasn't mentioned it or if your friend had mentioned it to you you would know that ahead of time right so like really it's about being out there in the world eradicating stigma by using the words and people giving people information and if people didn't know it in the world we live in a world filled with abortion stigma and the only way to eliminate it is by talking about it all the time yeah, we we have to be the ones that do that. And I'm so grateful that you are in spaces speaking up for folks who A, don't get the opportunity to, and also making spaces more friendly to those that want to. Thank you so much to Dr. Melissa Madeira for joining us. You can follow her work on Instagram at The Abortion Diary and on Twitter at Abortion Diary. And take action by talking about abortion to anyone, everywhere, all the time. Thank you so much for joining us, Melissa. 
Thank you. Thank you. And now it's time for our fake sponsor, Airbnb Flea. Are you a conservative lawmaker or evangelical pastor in need of a discreet place to hunker down while your mistress gets a secret abortion? Airbnb Flea has got you covered. Airbnb Flea is your one-stop app for all clandestine abortion travel needs. No other rental app lets you search for places to stay in states where abortion is still legal, despite your own best efforts, but are safely off the beaten path, away from those judgmental elites screaming hypocrisy. Just look at the reviews. I booked a small cabin in the Vermont woods. It was well-hidden, included all the amenities, stocked with gay ice cream, and the views were gorgeous. The best part is no one knew about our little situation. Signed, Herschel W. Download the app today and enter coupon code OOPSIEBABY for 10% off your first Airbnb flea booking. Airbnb flea. What abortion. What mistress. What a comfortable mattress. <laughs> uh, Moji, what I want really is actually an abortion and some of that gay ice cream. I do too. And a comfortable mattress. Who doesn't like a comfortable mattress? And, oh, it just shows that, you know, Republicans, they're just like us. Oh God, please don't let them meet. Anyway, <laughs> before we move on to our next guest, uh, we also wanted to let you know that the comedy duo Frangela will be counting down the best and second worst repro stories of 2022 with the Buzzkills. And you can listen in on Friday, December 23rd. Here's a little preview. Hey, it's Liz, and I'm not just with my feminist Buzzkills live co-host, Marie and Moji. I'm also with Francis Collier and Angela Shelton, a.k.a. Frangela. Hey. Hello, everyone. Hey. We're joining forces for a special co-pod where we break down the best and the second worst stories about abortion in 2022. Because we all know what the worst was. No spoiler alerts on that one, unless you've been asleep all year, in which case, good morning. Mm, how are we even supposed to pick the second worst? Mm, so much trash to take out. And so little time. Yes. Feminist buzzkills and Frangela. To infinity and beyond. We really need a Frangela Buzzkills mashup. Okay, how about this? Feminist Buzzkills live. When BS is popping, Franz Buzzkilla pops up. See what I did there? Yeah, we did. Yeah, don't do that again. Ever. Ever. Rude. Rude. And now it's finally time for author, educator, and creator of the viral web series, Smarter in Seconds, Blair Amani. Welcome, Blair. Hi, Blair. Hi, Blair. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. I'm so glad that we can include you in our in our December guest rotations. Your books and resources, they're so thorough. Can you talk about how you approach your content that is for everyone to consume? And can you talk a little bit about who you're trying to center and who you're trying to reach? Thank you for asking. I've actually put a very fine point on how I describe this recently, um, because I think that a lot of educational materials do two things. They come from people who act like they've always known that information and are super impatient with everyone else who doesn't. And then they kind of like demean folks. And I'm not saying everybody does this, but a lot of people do. And it's really unfortunate. Um, but I try to approach everything with the reminder that like I'm holding a mic in my hand. At one point, I didn't know it was called a mic. And so I'm not going to be impatient with somebody who doesn't. Um, and then apply that also to things like intersectionality theory and like socialization and socialism, like all those different things. Um, and I try to also not be somebody who's a 
toxic positivity person because I've gone to therapy and worked on that um, and I'm still working on it, but instead try to like frame things in a way that helps people to feel empowered with new information instead of feeling in despair. Because I think something else that happens is folks get overwhelmed and they feel like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And instead I try to be like, hey, well, now that you know, you can improve, we can do better, that we have so much time. All we have is time. We're going to do great. Um, but then also like with room for accountability for people who have the resources, who have the access and who have the information at their fingertips. I just try to give it to everybody who doesn't uh, and make it fun and colorful at the same time because I have ADHD and I get easily distracted. So I try to write my materials in a way that accommodates folks like myself. I'm recently accepting that all the best people are neurodiverse. And so I'm glad that you are leaning into that. (laughs) A lot of our listeners may have seen you on TikTok where you break down, again, in smaller bites, just some of the topics covered in your newest book. Read this to get smarter. What's it like being an educational influencer? I'll say that it's really cool. Um, It's so dope because like every single day I get to dress like a cartoon. Like right now I'm in upstate New York and I definitely went to like one of the local stores um, in pink pants, a bright pink puffer jacket. I think I was wearing a purple beanie. I have a shirt that's, you know, very colorful. Um, And then I'm also like mixed heritage black person. So like there's a lot of things going on that people are not used to. And I was just smiling and waving at people. So in a fun way, I'm like, I used to only wear black, which is also fine, but it's just like the level of confidence I've been able to get from like doing what I love every single day, working with amazing people, whether that's um, my, you know, educational beauty company that I'm co-owner of Fempower Beauty or working with feminists as head of education. Like everything that I do is very affirming to who I am. And what I do is also hopefully affirming to other people. So like it just gets me freaking going. Um, But it's also hard because you have to fund the work. I think that being a black woman educator means that, um, because of, you know, chattel slavery in the U.S. and anti-Blackness globally, people feel as though they shouldn't have to pay me for my work. So I have a lot of entitlement. I have a lot of people expecting and not expecting, but demanding labor of me. And so I, I think that's something that is a little bit different because you have like travel influencers who kind of are expected by their community to go on vacation and have fun. I posted that I was at like a nice upstate, you know, resort called P.A.L., which everybody should go to. It's very nice and super sustainable. Um, hashtag not sponsored. But then I'm getting demands on like, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And I'm like, dude, first of all, what makes you think you're entitled to tell me what to do? So there's a lot of that. But overall, I think it's really exciting. And I love collaborating with people. And um, I also think about folks like my grandpa, who always wanted to be like a filmmaker and how I can make tiny videos from like my home and with something I can hold in my hand and how different that is. I'm so glad that you brought up Fem Power because I'm always, when looking at your TikToks, really taken about your commitment to pink blush. And Marie and I are generally like dedicated, you know, black and brown people who wear red lipstick. Can you tell us a little bit more about Femme Power Beauty? And I thought it was a collaboration with them, but it turns out you're a co-owner. Yes. So as a socialist, (laughs) it's a collective collective ownership and cooperation. Um, I'm wearing the like nude lip right now, the self. So it's a little bit softer. I decided not to go all out with my purple lipstick at the tiny store up here in the Catskills, but maybe next time, you know, when I'm not by myself. Um, But with Femme Power, it started out, you know, uh, we met at this co-working space, uh, Alexis Andrulakis and Christina Basias, two Greek lesbians who were, you know, who are partners in love and partners at work. I officiated their wedding this July. So that was absolutely iconic. But the way we met was so random. Oh, yeah, it was definitely like part of my calling. So I'm actually (laughs) available for hire for uh, weddings. 
Yeah. Yes. And I'm certified. So, and I will co-create the vows of your dreams and the ceremony of your dreams with you. Um, and I actually just wrote for Insider about how we have to shift our mindset around marriage and it can't be like, oh, till death do us part, fatalism. Yeah, I love that in my relationship. Yum, yum, yum. Instead to be like, or until we no longer flourish together. And yep. then we can be whole people separately in addition to whole people together. Beautiful. But anyway, back to Christina and Alexis. So we were in a co-working space. I'm wearing a bright pink lip, a bright pink turban, chillin'. And they come up to me and they're like, hi, so sorry to bother you. Is your name Blair by any chance? And I was like, it is. They're like, we have this art that looks exactly like you. And I was like, how flattering. Thanks for drawing me. Now, it wasn't like I have had half a million followers at that time where that was like a possibility remotely. I had like maybe 20,000 followers and most of them were like people who I had met because I, I talked to everybody on the face of the earth, still do. But anyway, um, and they were like, yeah, so we don't know who you are though. And I was like, oh, okay, understandable. <laughs> and so I was like, dude, how do you have this art that looks just like me? And they're like, our artist, Alana drew it. She's in Australia. I was like, I don't know anybody in Australia. So, I mean, I have one cousin there, but he's not an artist. So uh, he's actually a firefighter. Shout out to Jared. But anyway, um, I was like, okay, how weird that you have this. Um, and they're like, yeah, it's actually our concept art for our new collection, which we're actually in the process of rebranding right now. I'm super excited about it. But, um, you know, it's called the Genesis Collection. This color is called Eve. And it was literally like very similar to the color I was already wearing. And I was like, uh, can I model for you guys then? And they're like, we we're going to ask you if you would. And I was like, great. I was going to ask you if I could. Um, and then when we were on set, this is 2018. The whole time I was like, so if I get really famous, like randomly, like out of nowhere, could we do a lipstick collaboration together? Like, and they're like, yeah, sure. Cause they were like, how, like what, you know? Um, and then it happened. And so as soon as it happened the same week, I went viral in 2020 when all the black anti-racist educators went viral. I was like, Hey y'all. So it happened. Um, and we picked up that discussion in the beginning of 2021. And the way that I became co-owner was, you know, I get a percentage of all the sales from the FemPower Lip Collaboration. But I also recognize that I didn't partner with Sephora or Ulta. I partnered with a small business. Mm -hmm. And I see the struggles that they go through, like from fulfilling from their own home to, you know, you know, shipping to a, a fulfillment facility, which was something that we were able to accomplish this year and having like amazing sales. Um, but I still wanted to, you know, in ba invest back to them and recognize that, okay, I'm getting paid from doing influencing and from speaking, and I'm getting paid by these giant corporations who can spare the cash, I'm going to reinvest it. And so I reinvested so often and I started to, you know, like, okay, well, we'll profit share on this. Um, I'll pay for the photographer. You pay for the makeup artist. That happened so often that I was able to get equity in the company and become co-owner, which has been really exciting because I think that when you choose a certain path when you're in university, if that's a, a path that you choose in it at all, like just generally in life, we're told you have to pick one track, you keep going and you keep doing that, and then you die um, because this is America and capitalism is oppressing yes. all of us. Um, and it's like, no, you can change. Like you can, you can do things like making beauty educational and really like meeting consumers where they're at and not infantilizing them. Like we see so often with beauty companies. It's just been so cool. Like I think a big part of me has wanted to do some things that I'm currently able to do, but I have been afraid to name them. Like it's kind of wild to say, I want to own a beauty company. Like I want to change the beauty industry until you're kind of doing it. So it's a really good place to be in. And I'm so proud of what we've been able to accomplish because we have no investors. Like we're working on that raise, but we also recognize that when you go for investors, they want to own you, they yeah. want to own your brand, and then it starts to get diluted. So we're trying to be able to, you know, be agile in that. 
I love that. I am in a, in a previous iteration of my life. I worked in beauty advertising and I feel like I saw firsthand all the ways that we were invited to tell people that they were not good enough. And so anyway, I, I like saw when we were researching, I saw the Fem Power and I was like, I need to buy that now. I can't say what it is because I will literally get attacked, uh, rightfully so, by my co-owners. But we are coming out with something that I'm so excited about. And it's literally going to be a product that demonstrates to our like, just to like people in general, that you don't need makeup to be beautiful. And it's so cool, like the concepts that we have, because I was able to go to like a one of those trade shows where you like meet the suppliers, you learn about their supply chains and you figure out, okay, this feels like plastic. This feels like silk. Like, why is that? What oils are in it? And I've been learning from that, um, from my friend and mentor, uh, Alexis Andrew Lacus, who has been doing this for over 10 years and decided to do it for herself. But I see how basically you get to see how the sausage is made and you're like, oh, yikes. Like they're not wearing gloves. Like they are like the, the makeup suppliers, but like in that metaphor, yes, of the sausage absolutely. Being made. like yes. it's just like so cringe, like <laughs> the stuff where it's like, oh no, this is a great way to make people feel like shit about themselves yes. and sell them a mm-hmm. solution. And, you know, one of my other mentors and friends, uh, Kelly Brown told me it's okay to invite people into your ideas and your plans and tell them about your plans because you don't have time to babysit your old ideas and you bring something unique to the table. And I really feel like that's where we're at. It's so easy to feel competitive and to feel like, oh, we are doing this. Nobody else is. But then you look around, you're like, oh, nobody else is. But that's not even true because there's amazing um, other companies like Live Tinted, which is run by Deepika, who talks all about what it means to like live tinted and to like be proud of your color and fighting colorism. Of course, there's Fenty by Robin Rihanna Fenty. My queen. Oh, yeah. Say everyone's queen. I mean, yeah, she should have replaced uh, Queen Elizabeth, but that's just my opinion. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there's literally no mechanism for that to happen on purpose. Yeah, Barbados could have used the representation, though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but no, like, I'm actually really inspired by folks like Rihanna because one of the first things that she did when she became famous was participate in cooperative and collective economics. She opened an oncology center, I believe, in Barbados, and she has the Clara Lionel Foundation. Like, she immediately went into philanthropy. Um, and I think that's why she was awarded at Harvard, but it's like the people who are walking the walk aren't just doing it to say they're doing it. It's part of their DNA. It's part of their values. And it shows up in their business, too. Speaking of you referencing values, one of the things I personally really appreciate about your content, your education, your materials is that you come into your work as your whole self. And that includes your Muslim faith. And I was hoping for our listeners that you could talk about how your relationship to Islam impacts and informs your activism. I know you're on the board of MPV. Your engagement is great. And I'm so excited. Oh, thank you. So yeah, Muslims for Progressive Values is so amazing. I always credit Ani Zonneveld as like helping me to keep within my Muslim faith because they have this whole message of like, be Muslim and be yourself. I was very confident in my Islam, you know, when I first converted, but I definitely had moments of like doubt. And I think that's healthy. I think that anytime you're part of anything, it doesn't have to exclusively be a religion or a faith, but like any belief system. The United States, for example, yoga is a belief system. So is fitness, but not in the same like authentically rooted way from South Asia and a historical context. Just wanted to clarify there. Shout out to Susanna <laughs> Barkataki for discussing that if y'all are interested in learning more. But anyway, um, I think that for me, I've had moments of doubt, particularly after I came out as a queer Muslim in 2017 on accident on Tucker Carlson tonight on Fox News. Oh, so, a nice safe place, oh, a really nice warm blanket no. to come yeah, out where on. The next yeah. day, I definitely was the star of some headlines that were like, this gay Muslim wants your taxpayer dollars to pay for safe spaces. And I was like, wow, this sounds like a Mad Libs of things people hate. So um, <laughs> that was definitely not the most comfortable. I definitely, it was a twofold thing where I felt 
Like I shouldn't be speaking honestly about the fact that I was uninvited from mosques. I've done more speeches at churches since I've come out than mosques because I felt like that's damaging to the Muslim faith. But if people think that all Muslims are homophobic, they're trying to display and project. And I don't need to be silencing my suffering I've gone through in order to protect something. And the fact is that like institutions are maintained by suppression. And that's why we have all these different standardizations. And particularly when those institutions are attacked, we see that happening even more where we've seen this really harmful kind of pivot within the LGBTQ plus community. For example, when it comes to talking about folks who are religious. Why? Because they're being attacked by religious institutions. And so there's like this secularization. So it's really everywhere. There's nowhere safe. Everywhere all being attacked. Everyone is out. No, I'm just kidding. No, but there's a lot of solidarity and community that we can actually have. <laughs> and I think that MPV has been really helpful for, for that. But like, for example, I'm starting to produce kids cartoons. And I think a big part of Islam is about, you know, making sure that your actions match your intentions. And that means whenever I'm thinking about like saying yes to something, I always have to make sure it matches my values use. And that part is very big a part of my process. And of course, when people see my page, they're like, oh, yeah, she's super Muslim. She has a hijab in every video. But like my Muslim faith actually comes into I pay everybody who's in my videos because that, you know, zakat or giving back to your community is something that's very emphasized. So it's very much a part of my ethos and my ethics. Of course, it's very much a part of my aesthetic as much as that's a thing. But I also recognize how I appear to people symbolically. So for example, as the kind of global zeitgeist to just talk like I'm from Brooklyn for a minute. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, the, the global zeitgeist truly was starting to forget or ignore the crisis in Iran and the revolution taking place there following the murder of um, Zina Minimas. And I was in Costa Rica and I couldn't go to any of these protests that were happening. And I saw some political figures, you know, cut their hair in this kind of like active political solidarity. And I saw that people were doing that in Iran themselves and like, you know, burning their hijab because it was no longer a symbol of religious piety. It was a symbol of patriarchal oppression. And I was like, I'm going to shave my head. I actually didn't. That's a lie. I was like, I'm going to cut the ends of my hair on video. And then I was talking to my friend, Jake Sassville, who's actually the owner of um, this beautiful retreat space in Costa Rica called Imaloa Institute, uh, where I'm actually going to be doing a retreat with Susanna Barkataki, who I shouted out earlier. Uh, I was telling him what my idea was. There was a videographer there because we were supposed to be getting content to like show what we were going to do for the yoga retreat. And at the end of me telling him what I was going to do and how I had already gotten the scissors from the kitchen staff, he goes, OK, so do you want my shaver? Because he completely skipped over the fact where I was going to just cut the ends of my hair and went straight to Blair's going to shave her head. I'm in impulsive. And I can recognize a good idea when I hear one. So I was like, yes, I would love to use your shaver. Let's do it. And then I texted my you know, spouse because we just got married. That was maybe like a week after we got married, if that. A picture of me with my hair and then a picture of me bald. And so I was able to post that. But the reason why that connects to my you know, Islamic faith, in addition to being you know, performance art, which is something that I've always been very interested in, is that I think that my visibility as a Muslim woman who wears hijab publicly, that made me feel like a sense of responsibility to do something very bold. And also it was like an honor and a blessing to be able to just use an act that was going to mesmerize people, really draw people in with a pure voice over talking about what's happening in Iran. And that kind of sense of community and responsibility to community, I think, is another way that my Islamic faith shows up. I really love that. And I actually really love that video. I, I saw it. I think that we were we were talking again in, in sort of our research. And I was like, because uh, she was like, oh, is she bald? And I was like, I, she cut her hair in solidarity. It happened. Here it is. It's on TikTok. Yeah. 
It was funny because like the next three days I was like looking in the mirror at Imaloa and I was like, who the heck is, oh yes, I just, I decided to shave my head. Yeah. Um, but it was also cool because I went to the makers conference a little bit after that and I was, you know, very, very bald still. And it was cool because people like saw that I was bald and were like, oh, hey, thanks for like, that was cool. Because it was just like kind of an instant recognition type of thing. And it was also kind of this other layer. It was actually interesting because some of my friends who like don't know a lot about Islam, but like pretty much trust that I do things that like are meaningful. were like, oh, Blair, wow, I didn't know about the Muslim tradition of shaving your head after you get married. And I was like, thank you for making that up. Um, <laughs> and then I explained like why it actually happened. But I just like love my friends because they were like, oh yeah, no, I'm sure that's like part of the thing. Yep. You're like, sure. <laughs> so we have been talking and oh my God, talking with you is like rushing by. You are so captivating and fun. Thank we you. would like to end this with what makes you happy these days? It's been a little dark and weird, but also like joy exists even in hard times. So yeah, let us know your happy place. So it's interesting the amount of, this is going to sound so grim, but I have so many friends who have had like undiagnosed depression and they realize they have undiagnosed depression because they're around me and I'm just constantly freaking joyful and like almost to like a kind of scary degree. But for me, it's hard for me not to be excited about stuff. Like definitely I have like my moments of sadness, but the way that I am is like, if you're very intentional about it, everything can bring you joy, particularly if you have your like mental health needs met, which is definitely difficult to do in a country where there's so little mental health care. But I've been on Ritalin and Lexapro since I was in elementary school, which has really helped me to kind of like be at my like peak mental health you know, mental fitness or whatever you want to call it, and really be able to kind of like take things under consideration. I think that's something, you know, just to bring up my Islamic faith again, that I think is what makes a lot of people miserable. And it's not our fault, right? It's because we live in these systems of oppression and these media worlds where it, we're encouraged to do this. But basically to not compare yourself to other people, you know, instead of being like, oh, I'm jealous or oh, I'm resentful. Like I saw a bunch of people at like Art Basel or whatever. I don't even know how to say it. And I was having FOMO that I wasn't there. Like, what the heck is that? So instead, I just look at the picture and I say, mashallah, which means as God intended and try to let go of that like resentment and competitiveness, which is sometimes internalized toxic masculinity. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely that a lot of the time. 100%. Oh my gosh, Blair, we are so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. Listeners, you can learn more about Blair Imani by visiting BlairImani.com and joining her on social media at Blair Imani. Thank you so much again for joining us, Blair. Thanks again to Dr. Melissa Madera for joining us. Make sure to follow her work on Instagram at The Abortion Diary and on Twitter at Abortion Diary. Thanks so much for listening. We are here for you as we navigate these dark days. We want to be a reliable info hub and source of humor as we face some really hard times ahead. We are in this together. We got you. Subscribe, write a review, give us five stars. It's the best way for our podcast to reach more people. And by doing so, you're helping more people learn about this assault on abortion access. To keep up on all the latest Repro news, follow us on social at Abortion Front on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and YouTube. FBK Live is edited by Remy DeTournay and is produced by Abortion Access Front. Looking for where you might fit in to do some abortion activism? Look no further than our five-part training series, Operation Save Abortion, available in video and podcast form. Gather friends, watch or listen together, and follow the activity guide for a full experience. Details on the series are at operationsaveabortion.com. And make sure you check out the activist calendar as well, which is chock full of local and national actions and educational opportunities. 
Looking for some action, like be a part of the solution action? Join our friends at Collective Power for Reproductive Justice for an online conversation about the multifaceted approach needed in organizing for abortion access going forward. Sign up through the link in our show notes for this event happening on December 15th at 6 p.m. Eastern. And if you're in the Twin Cities area, December 30th and 31st, make sure you catch Liz's annual end of year show at the Parkway Theater. This is the 13th year Liz has returned to the Twin Cities to hilariously roast the year that was. And this year will not disappoint. Tickets are available at theparkwaytheater.com. On next week's show, we'll revisit three of the best interviews of 2022 with repeats from Mike Bonanza, Paula Avila Guillen, and Peaches. And lastly, join our Patreon. You'll support great content and get cool FBK merch and experiences. All pledges support this pod and all of our activism at Abortion Access Front. Pledge at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills. We leave you with TikTok Christian influencer Sierra Scribner, who shows her whole ass with the message that flicking the bean is witchcraft. Masturbation is a form of witchcraft. Not anyone is realizing that this is a demonic attack and it's a form of witchcraft. Masturbation is a form of control. You understand that you are literally controlling an orgasm. You're controlling your own pleasure. That is witchcraft. That is a curse that you begin to place over your own life that will then literally bleed into your future children's life. This means that this will become a generational curse that you started or that your parents started that will now go to the next generation. It's witchcraft. Feminist Buzzkills Live, the podcast from Abortion Access Front. When BS is popping, we pop off. New episodes drop Friday. If you want to support our podcast and all the work of Abortion Access Front, like, subscribe, and join our Patreon at patreon.com slash feminist buzzkills.